the cannabis industry is evolving at a radical pace, progressing toward the green peak. Each week, join Richard Zwicky, a cannabis visionary and entrepreneur, as he interviews experts from around the globe to discuss updates and evolutions in the world of cannabis. Let's make that climb together up the, the green, green peak. peak with your host, Richard Zwicky. Hi, everybody. I'm Richard Zwicky with The Green Peak. And joining us today, we've got Paul Rosen, who Paul has a uh, phenomenal background in the history of the development of the medical cannabis industry in Canada and uh, internationally as well. Paul, welcome aboard. Richard, what a great pleasure to be here. Hello to you and to your audience. Yeah, and you're, um, you know, you've been involved in a number of ventures, both as a uh, entrepreneur and also as a, an investor across the industry over the last uh, half decade or a bit longer, I guess, by now. Um, you've seen a That's lot true. of transformative yeah. changes, not just in Canada, but internationally. What excites you looking forward? Oh, what a great question. So, yes, I have been actively involved in the Canadian and international cannabis industry starting back in 2012, which is mm -hmm. in cannabis years, as we all know, a heck of a long time ago. Um, and so I guess I'll just like compare then to now and say the part that delights uh, and, and awes me, shock and awe, if you will, is just the rapid pace of global development uh, around the plant, the pace of sensible cannabis reform. And now dozens of countries, several of which we maybe wouldn't have thought as early adapters, um, the full uh, development of a Canadian adult use market. I can assure you why we talked about that back in 2012 and 2013. I don't think we had any reason to believe it was as imminent as it became. And I will say that just generally the thing that gives me a lot of juice for this industry and a lot of excitement and optimism going forward is just the dynamic commercial potential of the plant, whether it's for medical applications, where I think we're just at the very beginning of what will be a steady cycle of proven formulations along the lines of an Epidiolex GW Pharmaceuticals blockbuster first FDA approved cannabis therapy. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And I think we're going to see the the rest of the market, the so-called adult use market, really continue to fill in at a sort of a blistering compounded annual growth rate. So we are, you know, people sometimes like to use baseball analogies, what inning are we in? I'm going to put that aside because, I mean, I love baseball, sure. But I think, you know, we're early. <laughs> we're not yeah. as early as when I when I began, but we're still seeing great novel opportunity. Um, and even in America, there it should be noted that there's still 15 plus states that have no program whatsoever, representing a population larger than Canada's. And then when we cast our eye to all the felon in Canada with finally a proper rollout of distribution through dispensaries uh, sufficient to satisfy the market demand for the products right the massive technological innovation around these products meaning that we're just getting better and now that we've mm -hmm. studied the plant legally we're coming up with better and better results or outcomes for our our clients or our patients and then richard at an international level it's truly staggering um how many countries are seriously either advancing the cause of sensible cannabis reform or actually uh, well under underway. And I will just, you know, without counting all of them, these uh, represent- There's too numerous, many. <laughs> yeah, numerous economies in Africa. So obviously South Africa and Lesotho would be clear examples, but they're not alone. Zimbabwe as well, Rwanda as well, Ghana soon to be. 
all of course Europe is really a big prize that a lot of people are uh, you know um, working towards taking uh, participating but Europe is still a small market if you measure the actual state of the European economy it's mostly small medical uh, jurisdictions there's no real adult use other than the experiment in Amsterdam and, right. um, and even the medical adoption is relatively slow because regulators have taken a pretty narrow view about what conditions could qualify for uh, medical cannabis and what cannot but we don't have to speculate what's the future of Europe we know it's going to eventually and probably not so far away become one large continuous adult use market uh, Latin America, anyone that pays attention to the industry knows that Colombia, Uruguay, Ecuador, now Peru and uh, Mexico, which is in Central America, but close enough, or actually it's in North America, it's technically, but it's in the region, it's in the Latin region, I would say. We and Brazil, uh, we can see Argentina as well, we can see either slow halting steps towards medical or really getting ready for more uh, of an aggressive, sensible cannabis cannabis policy and really all that leaves left because yeah, Oceania is covered by Australia which has got uh, a robust medical and soon to be adult use program that just leaves Southeast Asia as the areas of the map that haven't really started to progress but even in Southeast Asia Thailand has a medical program South Korea has a modified medical program everyone knows that mainland China is very active in the hemp-based CBD industry and no doubt will find their way towards medical cannabis as well so I'm just wildly excited about the growth prospects of the macro industry, and I'm certainly excited about the growth prospects of a number of the companies that I'm affiliated with. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, uh, I, I, the pain of dealing in Europe has been something I've had to deal with with uh, Plano when I was dealing uh, with building the international trade section of that. And we were able to ship back in 2019, but then with COVID, the office in Germany, for example, dropped down from a number of regulators dealing with the file to one and uh, everything slowed down dramatically. And even pharmaceutical companies we worked with could, you know, it was taking 10, 11 months for them to receive paperwork back, which is just outrageous on uh, many levels. But, you know, with that behind, um, you know, I look obviously at the LATAM market where I've got you know, deep roots and it's very different from what's been going on with Africa. It's interesting to hear you mention that. Um, you know, one of the the things, of course, you've been uh, active throughout the market is, and you know, Colombia is a different aspect to it, um, where the government made, you know, brought in a lot of foreign capital and made representations around the exports that has held the industry back. What do you think happens when Colombia actually fulfills on its promise of allowing exports like any like anybody else would, with where flour isn't restricted and the other restrictions are lifted? Yeah, I think it it is going to happen. We already we know that the Colombian legislature or executive branch as well are already contemplating the development of an export market for flour, uh, psychoactive flour, not hemp, Correct. Uh, not CB hemp, not smokable hemp flour. Well, they're they're looking at both psychoactive and non-psychoactive right. flour. But the non-psychoactive, you can they already have. Colombia has already been a relatively frequent exporter. You know, of say uh, hemp-based CBD isolate as one example. Oh, isolate's well, not an issue. It's the flower. Right. That's the that's problem. right, right, precisely. But the the we can see just recently there's been um, you know articulable progress on the industry for export. So the whole concept, if mm -hmm. you will, of Colombia as a preferred you know 
um, meteorologically advantageous jurisdiction where you could produce stunningly effective APIs at a fraction of the price of, say, an indoor grow in Saskatchewan. <laughs> I think there, there's there's something to that, um, and I think that I don't think I think that the balancing the competing forces here are. On the one hand, you have company countries like Columbia and many of the companies that are well known, whether it's Cleverleaf, Skyrod, Pharmacelio, uh, Avicana, you know, wanting, you know, building their businesses with a very export first focus. And mm-hmm. uh, I always tell entrepreneurs or founders or executives, you know, you really got to tie down your, your, your domestic market, whether that means the region or the country in, it's important to not rely upon exports because of counterparty risk when you're building out, you know, your viable financial plan. And I think that's what happened in Colombia is a lot of these companies um, have been struggling because they don't, they spent more money, if you will, on capacity than their local domestic market would imply demand for. And everyone that I knew was, that was racing into Colombia, which will you just use as a proxy for low cost cultivation, you know, really believed that they were uh, going to be able to create meaningful gross margins through exports. And I'm, and I'm saying that likely will happen, but the countervailing force is that there's going to be protectionism practiced by countries like Canada that mm-hmm. don't want to eviscerate the multi-billion dollar investor-backed infrastructure development that we came up with. Mm-hmm. And so far, it should be noted that Canada has um, covered itself in glory as an exporter, but has really shut the door, <laughs> shut the door pretty firm as an importer. And there's no doubt that the the Canadian stakeholders are lobbying to limit the amount of imports because they don't want to turn their very expensive uh, facilities. Uh, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to have them become um, not only redundant but irrelevant because you can buy much higher quality APIs from uh, outdoor or greenhouse grown um, conditions in Colombia and, you know, meet all the requirements of efficacy, GA, GMP, GMP and GACP, GACP, all these things. So you really know, like you're, you've got a phenomenal product and then it's just going to be once we allow more or less a free market to take place, it should be no different than the free market around coffee beans, where mm-hmm. Colombia, as an example, is a not the only country, but one of the leading regions where coffee beans are harvested, processed, exported, along with um, other countries as well. But we don't grow a lot of coffee beans in Canada or in the United States because environmental conditions are not favorable. So I think it's not going to be like the moment Colombia allows flour exports, where are you going to see those exports being driven to are economies that are still having a shortage of domestic supply, whether it's Germany, the UK, um, Israel. It'll be shipped for processing to finished goods. Well, there's, the I think there's the a lot of merit right. in and that. That's, and that, it's a, it's like a natural resource supply and, uh, it just, you know, we have to look at it, you know, for what it is, because that's where the value is. It's your, everybody then is able to make their margins improve, where the cost of production drops from a dollar fifty to seven cents. That's so right. there's some margin paid in between. That's okay. Um, we do have to take a break, but when we come back, I'd like to chat on, you know, a bit further on this. How you see it? You know, you're involved in Ianthus in 1933 and a few other things, and you know, how how are you prepping for some of the changes that are coming in the 
the U.S., uh, which is where you have, a, you know, I think a lot of involvement with Ianthus and other things, and, uh, you know, everywhere else. So we'll be back in a minute with Paul Rosen. I'm Richard Zwicky on The Green Peak. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling, with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at S-H-O-O-G-I-E-S dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet, take anywhere treat. Climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success. Cannabis Radio is back with more of The Green Peak. And we're back with Paul Rosen on the Green Peak. And, uh, you know, before the break, I mentioned a couple of companies. Paul, you're heavily involved with 1933 now. And I, you know, to be clear, I know you were involved in Ianthus previously, which has expanded its footprint to continue across the U.S. But, you know, uh, your your largest, uh, I think, day-to-day uh, involvement is with 1933 at this point. Tell us a bit about that and, you know, how it segued from some of your other uh, activities previously. Uh, great. Um, so 1933, I am the chairman and the CEO. We are a Nevada-based operator. We are not a vertic- fully vertically integrated operator. We have a substantial cultivation asset producing, in my opinion, some of the best, if not the best, indoor-grown flower in Las Vegas. And we have a manufacturing uh, vertical, which produces a full range of concentrates and um, we'll call it infused products products and we have a hemp division called canna hemp um so i got involved uh my original touch point was i had been tracking the company it was one of the first licenses in nevada and i had become a shareholder back in um, the spring of 2018 i had made a quite frankly a material investment uh, in the millions of dollars into the company and at that time i was investing in a whole range of u.s operators uh, on the belief which has been validated that the U.S. had a lot of growth potential and that in 2018, not that Canada was uh, static, but we were just a bit further ahead and it was we were getting to sort of a more mature market, whereas I thought that the valuations across all of U.S. cannabis were still really attractive in 2018. And I made a number of investments. Uh, one of the larger ones was in 1933. And largely these were intended and often were passive investments. Um, But in the spring of 2020, during the sort of um, worst moments of COVID, uh, of that wave round one, that um, uh, Las Vegas was hit pretty hard in the cannabis industry, Richard, because the dispensaries were closed without notice. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really a infrastructure for proper delivery curbside pickup. And like a lot of companies, we saw our sales really take a dive. And at that point, although I was not an executive in the company, I was one of the larger shareholders. And I reached out to the board to indicate that I felt that the company needed to make some balance sheet adjustments or improvements. At that time, I was concerned that absent a little bit of urgency, the company, which had a strong asset base, you know, may be compromised uh, 
because of the dramatic impact that COVID had on revenue and the board, you know, I had no, um, you know, no sort of, uh, I, I, my dog in the fight was that I had a lot of shares of the company. I wasn't looking for right. a, a job. I was gets, looking to back up my capital, if you mm-hmm. will. And, and I'm glad I did because um, a lot of what I had projected and proposed has come to fruition, which eventually led to the board offering me or asking me would I take on the role of CEO. The board had made a decision independent of myself to part ways with the previous CEO who was a respected colleague of mine. Um, and I had no role in that, but they approached me to say, you know, you're a, in their estimation, <laughs> hopefully they're not wrong, you're a uh, knowledgeable, hardworking, ethical, and um, well-known uh, executive in the industry. And I think we right now, we just need some stability. You showed some precipicity, there's your million dollar word, in <laughs> getting out in front of the balance sheet issues. Uh, and the truth is, Richard, I, I was pretty busy and, and remain pretty busy. And I was not hunting for a job, but I really felt that I could play a meaningful role, both to improve my own return and to find shareholder value for all the shareholders who had watched the company and the company stock uh, decline from you know a high at one point of over a dollar to where we were when I became the CEO, which was uh, under 10 cents stock. Um, and I've been really active in the company uh, ever since, uh, continuing right. to be super active. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about where what we've accomplished. Uh, the whole company, all of the hardworking people that work there, uh, I stand behind the people that work there, not in front of them. Uh, that's always been my philosophy. Uh, as a leader of organizations, we are only as good as the people. And we have some great people there right now today. And so just... I really felt that um, I could provide that sort of stabilizing force, but I really needed to work with a team of you know people on the ground. So improvements that we've made that I can speak to that I think really speak well of the company's future prospects are um, the balance sheet has been improved just as I had intended at the time that I um, approached the board. There was an outstanding convertible debenture, Richard, totaling about 13 million Canadian dollars. And I proposed and then was successful in getting the debenture holders to pass a series of amendments, lowering the strike price from a number that was so far to the money, we would just consider it not a convertible debenture into straight debt. And a number of other changes allowing the company to defer interest, allowing the company to the end of the term called in arrears, allowing the company to choose to pay that interest when due using either stock or cash, and also resetting the mandatory conversion where uh, the where the debenture holders must convert or forfeit, if you will. And uh, so from that day until today, the, we've seen the debentures shrink from 13 million. Today, they're at about four and a half million. So we're getting <laughs> close to 75% of those debentures converted, and I'm confident yep. that they're going to all convert. Um, I've been able to participate or help with three capital raises. We did a small raise when I became the CEO that I participated in. It should be said, having enough yep. skin in the game, I put more in because I really believe it's the best way for me to demonstrate my firm alliance with the shareholders. I win if they win. If they don't win, I don't win. That's the way it should be. That's what you really want to have, in my opinion, is CEOs and executive teams that have a lot to win and a lot to lose. It's the best alignment uh-huh. incentives. Um, so we raised about uh, $700,000 just as a stopgap. Then we raised, I'm speaking in Canadian dollars. Then a few months later, say in the rent, September, October, we were able to raise on a non-broker private placement about a million dollars. And last week we announced a bought deal with Canaccord uh, for uh, $3.5 million with a, 
you know, a green shoe to expand it beyond that. Yeah, I so, saw that. That was the first, that was around February 14th or thereabouts. A nice Valentine's yeah. gift company. It was just before. <laughs> that's my wedding anniversary. It was 30 years on the 14th. So well, uh, that was, I, was, I, was, I was pleased with that. I want to um, thank our colleagues at Canaccord who were pretty exemplary on this file and swift mm-hmm. and decisive and really pleased about that. So our big thing now is... Oh, they're is, very effective, right? The they're Canaccord great. Team. I mean, so. they're just, they're effective is a great word to describe it. Uh, you know, investment banks, you know, you need to understand where the risk lies. Uh, their job is uh, to return value to their shareholders. That's perfectly appropriate, as it should be. My job is to return value to my shareholders. But I found in this particular instance, and I've obviously been a part of numerous raises, that it was very efficient and uh, very smooth and very quick. Uh, and I'm very pleased that we did that. So our thing now, you know, our, our, our other initiatives were to cut our spend, uh, because I felt we were spending too much money. The company had unfortunately uh, gone, you know, for lack of a better word, blown through a lot of capital, and I couldn't see necessarily that they got a uh, return. And I really tried to try to take this company down to its basics. What are we great right. at? We're great at cultivation. We have right now a 66,000 or 67,000 square foot indoor cultivation facility that is producing outstanding flower as measured by the COAs, really, really top. And we have room to expand that. And we have a very highly regarded concentrate division that, you know, has 11 or 12 SKUs across the board, live resins, vape pens, disposable vape pens, um, infused uh, pre-rolls, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So we're we're feeling uh, pretty good about our asset base right now and the, the opportunity and the the task of management now is to grow our sales from where they were we have paid up capacity that allows us to grow our sales we've seen an increase in our sales essentially every month since about september incrementally moving up you know january was a better month than december which was a better month than november etc And, uh, and we have more capacity coming online and we're seeing, especially with flour, Richard, flour is a dominant form factor. One of the things about Vegas that was fascinating to me is that while we all thought Vegas was a tourism market, it's a very strong domestic market. It is. Yeah. And that, that can be underestimated. So sometimes, you know, they never let a crisis, uh, uh, never waste a crisis. And I will say that the cannabis industry generally did not um, took advantage of COVID. When I say took advantage, let's start by acknowledging that the real impact of COVID is our people that have gotten struck by the virus or possibly uh-huh. even have lost their lives or lost their um, economic security. And so we'll say the idea that anyone's winning in COVID is a little bit distasteful, but we will also acknowledge that certain industries have performed well in COVID. At the top of that stack, aside from like Zoom and uh, Amazon, is the cannabis industry, whether it was deemed an essential service or product or whether the need for people to find slightly more therapeutic escapes from the stresses of life in COVID, uh, we saw that cannabis did well. So why I say never let a, a crisis go to waste is it forced a certain amount of discipline, certainly in 1933, but I would say on the industry at large, to really focus on how to get profitable quickly, if not already profitable, or if already profitable, how to get more profitable. And it um, in the case of Las Vegas, it also taught us that the domestic market has more oath than we realized. So what I would say 1933 has done really, really well, and I will say other companies in Las Vegas or Nevada have also done well, is we've just improved our businesses because we had to under the pressure of COVID. And when tourism returns, and it will return 
robustly. I think we've all got better businesses than we had before. The pressure of course correcting, if you will, uh, under the austerity conditions that COVID imposed really have served our company well. I think we're a better run company today than we were a year ago in so many ways. I think our balance sheet is better. I think the quality of our products are better. I think our operations supporting those products are better. And I will say that getting a bot deal done was in some sense a referendum that we're moving in the right direction, right? Because yeah. the bank has to own these security if they can't sell it. So I'm optimistic. I feel that like all CEOs, I think our stock is undervalued. Okay, what a shock. I don't know a CEO that <laughs> other than Elon Musk, who manages to say it's overvalued and then drive the stock price up. You know, he's uh, Siwi generous. There's not a lot of people that like than that. I will concede no. that most CEOs think that they're undervalued. But I, I, all I can do is vote with my wallet. So on our bot deal, I participated. Uh-huh. Now, did I need to? Do I own enough shares? I looked at it as it doesn't make a difference where how many shares I own. I just looked at it like I still have capital to deploy. Where do I think there's a high potential for return? My answer was 1933. Not the only place I would deploy capital, but I had no trouble. Uh, you know, re-upping, if you will. Um, so it'll be the third time I invested in the company. I also want to tell the shareholders, I'm, you know, I'm ride or die with you in this company. Mm-hmm. This is that yep. simple. There's no, you know, my salary, I'm happy to say it out loud. It's pathetic. I chose it to be pathetic. It's. I, I think I'm the lowest paid CEO in the industry. I will say it out loud. I am making, right. with no severance provision on my contract at my choice, meaning the moment they don't want me, they don't have to pay me to leave. I don't need that. I'm economically secure. I make... Um, $150,000 Canadian a year to be the chairman and CEO of this company. And mm-hmm. I do that purposely. And that's a fraction of what I put into the company. I do it because I really feel that our industry, without naming names, has um, had a streak of self-dealing amongst this executive class. And I understand why the public or the investor public's appetite for that is beginning to tire. Um, and so I really wanted to be able to look shoulders in the eye and say, I'm ride or die with you. No one's, I don't, I don't need the salary. I'll, I need something because it's appropriate to pay a CEO of a public company, no salary, but I don't know of a CEO of a public company, never mind with my pedigree that makes what I make. I did that on purpose. I really did. I, I like money. If they want to, you know, if things were different and uh, I'm sure I could, if I was looking for a job, get a much higher paid job, but that wasn't what this was about for me. This is no, about restoring value to the equity holders. You know, and that's fair enough. And, you know, a lot of the turmoil that the industry is going through is very, you know, it's cyclical. It's the same as technology went through with, you know, companies after, you know, the big crash back in 2000 era and then 2008, a ton of companies disappeared, but the companies that survived um, thrived. And then, you know, the executive team sometimes had to change for the narrative to change. It didn't change the fundamentals behind good businesses. They had value, but we have, and, you know, compensation is always goes all over the map, depending on, uh, the, the team and the structure and the individuals and a variety of factors. Um, but we do have to take a quick break and we'll be back again with Paul Rosen for the last part of the green peak. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. <laughs> they have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? 
Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA-free and lead-free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. Climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success. Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. And we're back on the Green Peak with Paul Rosen. And uh, Paul, you know, one of the things we were talking about before the break is just, you know, the position of 1933 within the Nevada market. And you mentioned how, uh, you know, the expectation and the the effect of COVID on uh, the cannabis market there. And, you know, of course, Vegas being a tourist town, every industry was horribly affected, not just the individuals, but economically, there was a standstill for a while there. But now that, you know, everybody's emerging from it 1933 is looking to the go forward uh, aspects of it one of the things that companies that are left standing have the opportunity to do is uh, expand on a solid foundation how do you look at uh, you know the multi-state operators 1933's position vis-a-vis the market and where do you think you're going to go um, I look at a lot of the multi-state operators enviously because they've got some they've got some great businesses, um, and they combined uh, being early in their markets uh, with a good M and A capability. Uh, they were able to raise sufficient capital to guide them towards, um, in some instances, profitability, in some instances, real profitability. And so I think um, there's both positives and cautionary tales associated with a lot of these companies. We could say that across all of cannabis, there's been a number of numerous instances of companies biting off more than they can chew and then having to divest what they could not chew. Right. We've seen that in Canada, every big name, Afria, Canopy, um, Aurora, the top of the list, mm-hmm. not Cronus. Uh, Cronus has I don't think much divested of anything, but most others have had to move on from adventures out of the outside their core market. And um, again, numerous instances, uh, uh, they've taken multi-billion dollar goodwill impairments on some of these investments. And so mm-hmm. I think that, you know, there was a period of time where the market was rewarding what I might call perverse incentives of buy anything anywhere at any price and we'll bid your stock price up. And then we under... Yeah, it was all about the press release, right? Yeah, it was like you're living from press release to press release. And I get that having been a three-time public CEO, but... You know, it's got to really not just be uh, a momentum at more M&A. It's the, 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 it has to be an accretive M&A. And so the, some of the MSOs have, I think, done really, really well, not getting over their skis. I'm not afraid to name names. GTI, Cresco Labs, Cureleaf, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, Terra Ascend, Trueleaf in Florida, maybe Jushi Holdings, I'm leaving some off, but these are some of your bigger names. I went from like the A's to the B's in terms of market cap. But then we've also seen instances of companies having to scramble to either continue to capitalize or just get rid of their assets. Uh, MedMen, Harvest, 
and likely Ianthus. Mm -hmm. uh, as a, anyone that pays close attention knows, Ianthus really had their secured creditor take over the company and more or less crush the equity holders. Um, and we've seen Harvest and Nedman have to sell good real estate, if you will. Like when I say real estate, I mean the whole combined mm -hmm. asset uh, because they were didn't have the capital base to operate or grow, or they even had more urgent pressure. So to take that to 1933, I'm gonna just go old school here and say, until we make a great success out of Nevada, it would be downright irresponsible to be seek to become an MSO. Do I wanna become an MSO? Of course but I don't want to do it in a way that would create unnecessary peril or risk for the company. My view is uh, from a solid foundation, it's easy to grow from a weak foundation. It's harder. And I'm feeling that uh, whether we become an MSO or not, we can create shareholder value right there in the state of Nevada, just by optimizing the full asset base that we have and we could if we execute well um you know we could become a quite a profitable company i project there's still execution risk associated with that and so what i would you know if i could sort of write it up the way i want it to play out you know write my menu i would uh we would we royal we there's a whole bunch of people here we would um actualize the mission that we're on to become <laughs> a grow growing and profitable company we would then look to say are there ways to leverage our core expertise into new markets and at that time you know with an improved balance sheet hopefully a profitable enterprise and the level of um hr skill that we have that helped accomplish these goals then it would make sense that we may seek to expand our markets beyond Nevada. So it's something that is highly aspirational, but I think right now we're going to keep our head down and mm -hmm. focus on building the best performing asset we can in Nevada and believe fundamentally that if we do that, a whole myriad of additional opportunity will come our way. Until we do that, even though it's tempting and I get approached frequently, um, I feel that the best path towards shareholder value is to, to stay on the path that we're on right now. And, that, makes, uh, that makes good sense. Absolutely. We, we are running out of time and I want to ask one really quick question, um, which every entrepreneur who's listening to this and looking at the new markets opening across the U.S. probably has in their mind right now. You know, everybody focuses on, or people focus on, you know, high quality product, you know, the strains, the varietals they have, you name it. What's the one thing you would give any of the people who are starting off in the new markets, like the, you know, uh, Arizona that's opening up or others, a piece of advice, what they should focus on that most overlook? That's a great question. I mean, the one answer is what is your core capability? What are you great at? Like you mm -hmm. came to this industry why if you're like a cpg whiz or you've killed it in retail then you, and that's where your real passion and your skill set lies then i would recommend one point of entry if you're you know become a brand and take advantage of your wicked cpgs marketing digital marketing uh, distribution skills uh, or you've succeeded in other industries uh, that have some parallels to cannabis as a retailer okay then it might be best to focus on if available in those markets, those type of opportunities. Ultimately, I I think like any industry, once you get past the hype and the sizzle, it comes down to the quality of your product. And so for companies that are 
um, new to the industry, I find that trying to become a hyped up vertically integrated company on inception creates some challenges because just running a cultivation facility, it's hard. And mm -hmm. it's not something that I think anyone masters on crop cycle one. Running a extraction facility, also hard, not something that anyone masters, you know, right away. Sometimes it takes years. And then, you know, retail distribution. So I guess the short answer would be, where's your passion? Where do you think you have the most value? And try to aim your business in that direction. Um, there are some states where you do want to be vertically integrated. Obviously, Florida, you have to be vertically integrated. The only uh, yes, the licenses are almost like constitutionally demanding vertical integration. That's going to change, of course. They're going it to will. change that. And that's going to cut a lot of companies short. It will, but there's such a incumbent head start now that they're likely the better incumbents are likely going to you know have quite a moat around their businesses. So just to go to 1933 to be specific, you know we don't own a dispensary, and would it be beneficial for us to be able to sell through one of our own outlets? Yes, I mean I could make a case using modeling that it would be highly advantageous. Um, do we have the expertise to compete with a Planet 13 or other dispensary or a Reef? Today, we probably don't. Could we acquire it? Of course we could, but today we probably don't have it. Um, so I think, you know, you need to be open-minded enough to inbound opportunities that might expand your business and require the equipment of additional HR skill sets. But I know right now what we are great at. We are great, I think, the best at growing premium indoor, uh, great genetically backed flower with a range of THC contents that go from the low 20s all the way up to the mid 30s. And we are outstanding at producing a full range of concentrate products. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we have a strong reputation that's getting stronger. I would say our reputation in the community of buyers has never been higher than it is right now, just because of our products. Yep. Like Paul, don't like Paul, think Paul's great, <laughs> think Paul's horrible. Love Paul's product, not Paul's product, love 1933 products. We have great products. And so we know that's our metier right now. And that's where we're going to continue to put our resources while keeping one eye open to say, what else might we be able to do if a creative for the shareholders? Yeah. Well, Paul, we've run out of time, but thank you very much. I mean, I'm excited for the future of 1933. I know I've looked extensively across the markets and, you know, it's one of the companies uh, that I do look to as being a performer and doing well and uh you know i uh it's great having you on the show and getting some of your uh insights uh shared with our listeners thanks for joining us today on the green richard Peak. what a pleasure i've really really enjoyed myself and um thank you so much for being such a pleasant and knowledgeable host well thank you and thanks to our listeners we look forward to chatting again next week i'm richard zwicky we'll be back The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.